Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in Volume 5, which is titled The First Stage of Enlightenment, Stream Enterer. We're going to be studying chapters 11 through chapters 20. This is a really important part of this book because here we're going to be discussing dependent origination. This is the ultimate truth of the Buddhist teachings. This is the kind of supreme teaching of the Buddha that explains everything from why we experience discontentedness in a very concise 12-step process. And it also explains why we experience rebirth. So today we're going to be diving in deep into that. If you've studied these chapters ahead of time, you might have actual questions for the class. If you haven't studied ahead of time, it's okay because we're going to be sharing these teachings in the class today. We'll actually be reading along in the book chapter by chapter. Then I will be teaching what the chapter is sharing and then I'll open up for any questions for each one of these chapters. So if this is the first time you've ever joined us, you can start learning with us today and then in the future you can be reading these chapters ahead of time prior to class. You would access these books by going to buddhadailywisdom.com forward slash free Buddha books or just go to buddhadailywisdom.com and click on the button for free books. From there, you'll see all the books listed that you can download for free in PDF format. You can then take that, go print it if you'd like, or you can order a nicely bound copy through Amazon, which is sharing books all throughout the world. You'll be able to purchase through Amazon. So thank you all for joining today's class as we dive into learning the words of the Buddha. The way that we start this class is we start with a brief meditation just to prepare the mind for studying the words of the Buddha because if you do meditation prior to study it actually helps you to retain the teachings for a longer period of time which means it helps you to actually apply the teachings in daily life. In this particular volume, volume 5, it's really meaty and it provides a lot of really detailed teachings that are needed to be learned and reflected on and practiced in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment and ultimately to enlightenment itself. So this first stage of enlightenment is really preparing the mind to make its further progress towards enlightenment itself. So this is why this shows up as volume five, because there's a good amount of learning that needs to take place before we actually start diving into the teachings related to the first stage of enlightenment. So let's go ahead and start with our brief meditation just to prepare the mind. And then afterwards, we'll move into studying the words of the Buddha in English. 
So in this meditation, I usually don't provide too much guidance because people here have already been meditating for a good amount of time. Typically, they've already developed their practice through the other programs and resources that I offer in order to develop your meditation practice. So if you'd like to just go ahead and get comfortable with the body and then just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just focus on the breath, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation. consistent breath. Just a natural inhale through the nose. And exhale. 
Focus the mind on the breath. Whenever the mind is not on the breath, when you observe that, cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to be quiet now and just let you do the work to focus on the breath and cut off and let go of any thoughts that arise.
Welcome back from the new year. May you all have a very peaceful and loving, joyful new year as we enter into this new year of studying the Buddhist teachings, starting with the first stage of enlightenment, Sriminter, going from chapters 11 through chapters 20 in this volume 5 of the Words of the Buddha book series. The way that we do our class is we take each chapter one by one and there's someone who reads the chapter and then after the person's read the chapter then i'll teach anything that i would like to teach beyond what i've already explained in the book because in the book there's the words of the buddha and then explanations below that and then we'll open up to any questions that you guys might have either from your previous study prior to coming to class or if this is the first time that you are learning this, having joined us for the first time, then there may be questions that come up as a result of the reading, so then you can ask questions. And the way that you ask questions is through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. You put those into the comment section, our moderators will see that. 
or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you have there. So at this point, I just turn the class over to all of you, specifically the moderators, to go ahead and let us know who's going to be reading each chapter and guiding us through in terms of those. And then after each chapter is read, I'll step in and provide any teachings related to that particular chapter. The complete destruction of three fetters. With the complete destruction of three fetters, he is seven times at most a tenor, who, after roaming and wandering on among heavenly beings and humans, seven times at most, makes an end of discontentedness. With the complete destruction of three fetters, he is a family to family a tenor, who, after roaming and wandering on, among wholesome families, two or three times, makes an end of discontentedness. With the complete destruction of three fetters, he is a one-seed tenor, who, after being reborn once more in human existence, makes an end of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So as we talked in our previous class, which was the start of this book, there's many aspects and criteria that are needed in order for someone to attain the first stage of enlightenment and be considered a stream enter. One of the primary aspects of attaining the first stage of enlightenment is to eliminate the first three fetters. These are out of the 10 fetters. These are personal existence view, doubt, and wrong grasp of behaviors and observances, which we talked a little bit about last week. And I mentioned that those are the primary criteria that determine if someone's moved into the first stage of enlightenment. But there's also other things that you're going to learn as part of this book that the Buddha explains that a stream answer will understand and be practicing. Once someone attains the first stage of enlightenment for the very first time, they will not be reborn any more than seven times. That's what this first paragraph is explaining, that seven times at most attainers. So the first time someone attains that first stage of enlightenment, they will be reborn among heavenly beings and human beings no more than seven times before they actually attain enlightenment. And then as they come back and make additional attempts to attain enlightenment, they can actually attain this other type of stream entry. The Buddha has different types of ways of describing stream entry. This second paragraph is talking about a family to family attainer. This is someone who has attained stream entry and then they come back no more than two or three times and they're reborn among the human realm and among influential families, wholesome families. And then this other type of stream enter, again, someone who's eliminated the three fetters, but now they're only going to be reborn one more time and come back into the human realm and actually attain enlightenment at that point. So these are the different types of stream enters along with the other types that the Buddha talks about as well. The main thing to understand here is that it takes three fetters, the first three to be eliminated in order to attain stream entry. And then once someone attains stream entry, they're gonna be reborn no more than seven times before they actually attain enlightenment. 
these other two classifications of stream entry, this is how the Buddha classified stream enterers and he was able to determine these type of things for people. And he's also kind of helping you to understand what the progression of a stream enterer is. But for you to have to understand and even be able to delineate who's a family to family attainer or a one seed attainer, this isn't something that you're going to understand how to actually determine and there's no need for you to actually determine it the most important thing is is for you to get to the first stage of enlightenment so that then you can continue further in this life to actually attain enlightenment so there's the potential that someone can attain the first stage of enlightenment and then continue on and actually attain enlightenment in this life as well so there's no need that someone has to attain the first stage of enlightenment and stop there and then go through countless rebirths or at least these seven more you can actually continue forward having never attained any of the stages of enlightenment you can go through all four stages and actually attain enlightenment in this life having never attained stream entry in a previous life but also at the same time if you haven't observed your past lives you don't know whether you've attained any of the stages of enlightenment in the past or not you may have already been a stream enterer or a once returner at some point in the past and this is the birth for you to now attain enlightenment not that that's predetermined or predestined you still need to do the work to do that but here the buddha is just really helping you to understand that you need to eliminate those first three fetters and once you do so having been the very first time that you've ever attained stream entry you will not be reborn any more than seven times so let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter let's go to nick for facebook question okay there's a question from amina on facebook if someone has been reborn are they aware of this rebirth or not necessarily anybody who's alive today any beings whether they're human beings or animals we've all been reborn countless times this isn't your first birth the buddha talks about this that we've experienced so many rebirths that the blood that we've had in our previous rebirths equals more volume than all the water and all the seas he also talks about it in terms of all the milk that we've drank from our mother and our countless rebirths within the animal realm and the human realm and all the other realms is more voluminous than all the water and all the seas he talks about all the countless rebirths that we've all experienced to the point where he said it would be nearly impossible for us to find a being that's alive today that has not previously been our mother father brother sister or some other relative so for example, when I was a lizard, Bossom was my brother and we were lizards. Nick was my mother when we were monkeys. And Miranda was my father when I was a fish, some kind of fish or something like this, right? So we've had countless rebirths in every single being that we come in contact with. We've had all these previous rebirths. So you can rest assured that, that you've had previous rebirths. Whether you know that to be 100% true or not is all going to depend on whether someone has actually observed their past lives. Through learning and practicing to awaken the mind with the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and all the other teachings that gradually awaken the mind, oftentimes 
people will observe past lives. It's like as the mind moves to a higher consciousness, it's like taking a position up on a higher mountain. When you were down on the street level, you could only see what was going on on that particular street. But as you move to a mountaintop, you can see the entire city. You can see how one city connects to another city and that city connects to another city. And you can see all this interconnectivity of multiple cities as you move up to the higher mountaintop. This is the same as when the consciousness elevates to a higher consciousness and you clear out pollution of the mind. Those residual memories that are in the mind, oftentimes people can experience that. Not everyone who gets to enlightenment will experience that, but it is something that's possible. And that's when you'll know the 100% truth that you've existed in the past as previous beings. But prior to that, I always suggest people to kind of set that aside, this whole cycle of rebirth, even though the Buddha talks about it and teaches it because it's part of the teachings and it's something that we need to understand. But it can oftentimes be distracting for people because they're working on learning all these other teachings and all these other teachings can be independently verified in terms of how you're practicing and observing the condition of the mind improving. But you can't really confirm the cycle of rebirth unless you've actually observed past lives or if you start understanding enough about the cycle of rebirth that you can observe the unenlightened mind and how we act very much like animals and most of us are reborn out of the animal realm unless we've experienced one of these stages of enlightenment and you can see these other aspects of this cycle just continuing to repeat which i describe in volume one in chapter 20 or in chapter 20 i explain it there i think it's in chapter 20 where i explain some of the aspects of how the human mind has evolved out of the animal realm and out of the animal consciousness so it's not until we actually observe past lives that we have 100% truth of our past existences. But you don't really necessarily need to know your past existences or what's going to happen in the future necessarily. All that a practitioner should really be focused on is right now, the present moment, and training the mind to move to enlightenment. And I've prefaced a lot of these books with information explaining how the Buddha never used the cycle of rebirth in order to guilt, shame, or fear anyone into learning and practicing his teachings. That's really important to remember and to understand that as he talks about rebirth in the heavenly realm and human realm, or even as he talks about rebirth in the lower realms, he's just explaining the natural laws of existence and what is going to take place or what has taken place in the past as a way of helping a practitioner fully understand the natural laws of existence. And there's times where he actually connects the teachings of what you're doing right now in the present moment to certain rebirths in the past or to what rebirth in the future is going to look like. But he never does it in a way to guilt, shame, or fear anybody. So that's to help you understand the answer to your question there, Amina. Well, uh, no more question for this chapter, teacher. Okay, let's move on. Chapter 12. Let's go to Miranda. Abandoning six things one is capable of realizing accomplishment in view. Monks, without having abandoned six things, one is incapable of realizing accomplishment in view. What six? Personal existence view, doubt, wrong grasp of behavior and observance, 
craving leading to the plane of misery, anger leading to the plane of misery, and ignorance, unknowing of true reality, leading to the plane of misery. Without having abandoned these six things, one is incapable of realizing accomplishment in view. Monks, having abandoned six things, one is capable of realizing accomplishment in view. What six? Personal existence view, doubt, wrong grasp of behavior and observance, craving leading to the plane of misery, anger leading to the plane of misery, and ignorance, unknowing of true reality, leading to the plane of misery. Having abandoned these six things, one is capable of realizing accomplishment in view. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is talking about right view is that first step of the full path we talk about right view as understanding and practicing the four noble truths and that's how i get people started and moving in the right direction of understanding the entire path to enlightenment but what you learn as you dive deeper into the buddhist teachings is that right view really has many different aspects to it there's the primary aspect which is the four noble truths and the buddha even talks about in the eightfold path that right view is the Four Noble Truths. That's what he discusses. But then he adds some additional things in his natural way of teaching where he pulls back layer by layer, helping you see more of what he was talking about. So here he's talking about to fully accomplish and realize accomplishment in view or right view, then a practitioner will have abandoned personal existence view, which is the first fetter, doubt which is the second and then wrong grasp of behavior and observances which is the third fetter and that's what's going to allow a practitioner to get into that first stage of enlightenment along with other things as well but then he talks about craving anger and ignorance but he classifies it and he describes it as craving leading to the plane of misery so a person with accomplishment in view they wouldn't have eliminated all craving right or all anger or all ignorance so a person that is accomplished in view will have eliminated craving anger and ignorance leading to the plane of misery meaning certain cravings that would lead to rebirth in the lower realms or anger to the point of leading to rebirth in the lower realms or ignorance to the point of being reborn into the lower realms that's the plane of misery the realm of hell animal realm in the afflicted spirits realm these are the plane of misery because once you're reborn into these lower realms it's like being trapped in a prison this is what the buddha describes that it's very hard to get out of those lower realms and into a human birth or into a heavenly birth and this is one of the reasons why we should really appreciate the rebirth that we have here in this human realm that we've our decisions have led to and then really make efforts while in this human realm to actually attain enlightenment because once one is reborn into the lower realms this plane of misery you can't attain enlightenment in those lower realms it's only in the human and heavenly realms that you can attain enlightenment so a person who's accomplished in view will not be doing things like the five precepts we talked about this last week they won't be killing or stealing or having sexual misconduct or lying or taking substances that cause heedlessness these five precepts are part of the craving anger and ignorance that would lead to the plane of misery if we repeatedly do those things over and over and over again 
then it will lead to our rebirth in the lower realms. Of course, we've all probably done those things at one time or another, maybe not killed human beings, but maybe killed animals or insects or things like that. So it's not until we gain the wisdom of those teachings and we purify our moral conduct that we then move away from those things and we stop practicing those. So whether you're reborn into the lower realms isn't based on the accumulation of everything that you've done throughout this life. It's actually based on the condition of the mind at the time of death. So a person can actually improve their conduct through gaining wisdom and reducing craving, anger, and ignorance to the point where they're not performing moral conduct and they have improved mental discipline that doesn't lead to this plane of misery. And as you go through this book series, the Buddha will explain to you more in volume six, which is the natural law of gamma, and in volume 11, which is the realms of existence, he explains further what are the actions and what are the speech and what is the intentions and the mindset and the thoughts that lead to rebirth in these lower realms. So here, that's what he's describing is like to in order to get accomplished in view, you will have cleaned up your life practice to the point where craving anger and ignorance is reduced to such a degree that you wouldn't actually be doing anything that would lead to rebirth in these lower realms. Questions on this chapter? A question on the sound teacher. All right. So now we'll go to chapter 13. Let's go to Rick. The Supreme Mentor understands as they really are the cause and passing away of the world. Monks, without having abandoned six things, one is incapable of realizing accomplishment in view. Monks, an instructed noble disciple does not think when what exists does what come to be. With the arising of what does what arise. When what exists do volitional formations, choices, decisions come to be. When what exists does consciousness come to be. When what exists does name and form come to be. When what exists does the six sense bases come to be. When what exists does contact come to be. When what exists does feeling come to be. When what exists does craving come to be? When what exists does clinging come to be? When what exists does existence come to be? When what exists does birth come to be? When what exists does aging and death come to be? Rather, monks, the instructed noble the disciple has that is independent of others. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When there is ignorance, volitional formations come to be. When there are volitional formations, consciousness comes to be. When there is consciousness, name and form comes to be. When there is name and form, the six senses bases come to be. When there are the six sense bases, contact comes to be. When there is contact, feeling comes to be. 
When there is feeling, craving comes to be. When there is craving, clinging comes to be. When there is clinging, existence comes to be. When there is existence, birth comes to be. When there is birth, aging and death comes to be. He understands thus, in such a way, is there a cause and effect in the world. Monks, an instructed noble disciple does not think when what does not exist, does what not come to be. With the elimination of what, is what eliminated. When what does not exist, do volitional formations not come to be? When what does not exist, does consciousness not come to be? When what does not exist, does name and form not come to be? When what does not exist, do the six sense bases not come to be? When what does not exist, does contact not come to be? When what does not exist, does feeling not come to be? When what does not exist, does craving not come to be? When what does not exist, does clinging not come to be? When what does not exist, does existence not come to be? When what does not exist, does birth not come to be? When what does not exist, does aging and death not come to be? Rather, monks, the instructed noble disciple has wisdom about this, that is independent of others. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated. When there is no ignorance, volitional formations do not come to be. When there are no volitional formations, Consciousness does not come to be. When there is no consciousness, name and form does not come to be. When there is no name and form, the six sense bases do not come to be. When there are no six sense bases, contact does not come to be. When there is no contact, feeling does not come to be. When there is no feeling, craving does not come to be. When there is no craving, clean does not come to be. When there is no clinging, existence does not come to be. When there is no existence, birth does not come to be. When there is no birth, aging and death does not come to be. He understands thus, in such a way the world is eliminated. Monks, when a noble disciple thus understands as they really are the cause and the passing away of the world, he is then called a noble disciple who is accomplished in view, who is accomplished in vision, who has arrived at these true teachings, who sees these true teachings, who possesses a trainee's wisdom, a trainee's true wisdom, who has entered the stream of the teachings, a noble one with penetrated wisdom, one who stands squarely before the door of the deathless enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Nick. So this is the first kind of introduction to dependent origination in this particular series, because 
Chapter 14 is where we actually go in detail into dependent origination, which I'm going to explain to you dependent origination a bit more when we get into the very next chapter. But let me just explain to you what the Buddha is communicating here. What he's saying is this instructed noble disciple. Remember, an instructed noble disciple is a person who's a very deep student studying very closely with the Buddha. He used this nobleism to kind of recast what it meant to be noble. During his lifetime, people were led to believe that being noble was based on your birth, whether you were in a low family or a high family. But the Buddha recast that and said, no, it's more about your wisdom, your moral conduct, and your mental discipline. This is what determines whether you're noble or not. So you can be of a low family birth and actually be a noble person by having wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline that is of a wholesome nature. So the Buddha is saying an instructed noble disciple, so a student who's really close and deeply learning, does not think when what exists does what come to be. With the arising of what does what arise? The reason why a student who is learning very closely doesn't think this is because they know the answer. They understand the answer. They know when what arises does what come to be. They know with the arising of what does what arise because they deeply understand dependent origination. They aren't yet fully practicing dependent origination. They haven't eliminated all the causes and conditions, but they at least understand it. That's why a noble disciple doesn't think about these things because they already have thought about them. They've already learned it. They've already reflected on it and they're starting to practice. So that's what he's explaining here so that He's saying a noble disciple doesn't think about when what exists do volitional formations come to be because they already know that they come from ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. When what exists does consciousness come to be? They already know it comes from volitional formations. So they're not going to think about this. When a noble disciple is conducting themselves, they're not going to think when what does exist in terms of name and form, what comes to be that name and form is based on the causes and conditions of consciousness. So we could go through this whole step by step, but you're starting to understand the pattern that the Buddha is using here is he's showing the cause and effect. He's showing the causal relationship between when one thing exists, the next thing exists. And because this thing exists, the next thing exists. And because that thing exists, the next thing exists. This is why we call it dependent origination. At the very top of dependent origination is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. That's where we talk about that third poison or that third unwholesome root, that third fire. It's also the 10th fetter and the 10 fetters. It also shows up in many other places of the Buddhist teachings, here being the ultimate truth, the ultimate natural law, this dependent origination. Ignorance is the top line, which you'll see as we study dependent origination, which ultimately leads to rebirth and continuous discontentedness. But it's through this 12 steps that that occurs. And the Buddha is explaining the cause and effect, the causal relationship between ignorance and all of these other things that arise that ultimately lead to birth, aging and death and discontentedness. So that's essentially what he's explaining here. And he's showing you how an instructed noble disciple will understand these things. Let me see if there's anything else in here that we need to 
really be talking about here. You can see where he says he understands in such a way there is a cause and effect in the world. So in such a way, a noble disciple, one who's accomplished in view, essentially a stream enterer, understands the cause and effect of these conditions that when one condition arises, the next one is going to exist, which we're going to get into here in the next chapter. And then he describes here a noble disciple has wisdom about this that is independent of others, meaning that other people don't understand this that they don't understand this causal relationship. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to eliminate conceit or arrogance and pride as part of this path to enlightenment because you're going to learn and understand wisdom that just isn't common knowledge in the world. And other people are going to find it very challenging and very difficult to understand these things even when they start studying this. Dependent origination takes a good amount of time for the average person to be able to learn and reflect on and actually understand and actually start practicing. So this is one of the reasons why it's so important to eliminate conceit or this arrogance and pride that we don't walk around puffed up about all the things that the Buddha is teaching us and this wisdom that he's sharing with us, that we understand that the things that we're learning and the things that we understand about the natural laws of existence and how the mind works and how the mind functions and how the world functions isn't common knowledge. The goal would be for it to become more and more common knowledge with more and more people in the world learning and understanding these teachings. But the Buddha is saying, you know, this is wisdom that is independent of others. It's not something that the average person understands. Then he says here in this last paragraph where he says that a student who studied very well understands the cause, the cause of all of these conditions and the passing away in the world, meaning how they fade away, how to eliminate them. Because in order to attain enlightenment, you need to unravel this whole dependent origination. Because at the top line of dependent origination explains what puts all of this into process of this continuous cycle of rebirth and this continuous discontentedness. So in order to attain enlightenment, in order to eliminate discontentedness, in order to eliminate the cycle of rebirth, a practitioner needs to understand the cause of each one of these conditions and how to eliminate these from one's practice. And that's what the Buddha is explaining here. And he's saying, okay, once he's done that, once a person has done that, this noble disciple was one who was accomplished in view. That's fully accomplished in right view. And they've accomplished in vision. Vision is being able to see the path to enlightenment, being able to understand it. A stream enterer and one who's accomplished in view hasn't attained enlightenment yet, but they can see it more and more clearly through studying the teachings very deeply. That's what it means to be accomplished in vision or being able to see clearly. So now in that first stage of enlightenment, you can start seeing the path more and more and more clearly, having studied and practiced to that point. He is, this person has arrived at these true teachings. They haven't fully eradicated the 10 fetters, not fully enlightened, but they've kind of arrived. They've kind of shown up in this first stage of enlightenment. They see these true teachings, right? They can see this path very clearly. 
They possess a trainee's wisdom. Okay, now they're really ready to soak in and deeply train in this wisdom because they've now done all the preparation work in order to get to that first stage of enlightenment. And they possess a trainee's wisdom. They haven't yet attained the wisdom of an enlightened being, but in this first stage of enlightenment, they have true wisdom of that of someone who's truly ready to be trained because they no longer have personal existence view. They no longer have doubt about the teachings. They know with 100% certainty these teachings have led to the improvements that they experienced in the jhanas, in the improvements in the mind that they are experiencing in the first stage of enlightenment. And now they've got that wisdom. They've eliminated wrong grasp of behavior and observances. So they've got that true wisdom now and ready to really make the rest of the way to enlightenment. The Buddha says this is someone who's entered the stream, right? This is why we call it a stream enterer, because they've entered the stream. The stream is the Eightfold Path. Once somebody fully learns it, reflects on it, and is practicing it, now they understand this stream really well, and they've fully entered the stream and really ready to make that continuous journey to enlightenment. And that's why they will do that within no more than seven births. A noble one has this penetrative wisdom, right? So they've developed a deep amount of wisdom, but still a lot more work to do. One who stands squarely before the door to the deathless. The Buddha uses this word, the deathless, to describe someone who's no longer going to experience any rebirth. Because once you attain enlightenment, all the causes and conditions that create discontentedness have been eliminated but also all the causes and conditions that lead to rebirth has been eliminated too. So when there's no longer birth, there's no longer death. So the Buddha calls this the deathless or the deathless element. There will be death of the physical body once somebody attains enlightenment. They will eventually experience death of the physical body and the mind will separate, but there won't be any further birth after that. So the Buddha refers to them as the deathless, because if there is no further birth, then there isn't any more death either. And there's no longer that sickness, aging, death. There's no longer discontentedness for one who's attained enlightenment. So when you see this deathless or the deathless element is another way that the Buddha refers to it. He's referring to someone who's attained enlightenment, but one who stands squarely before the door to the deathless is having done all this work to become accomplished in view and attain the first stage of enlightenment, no longer going to be reborn in the lower realms, this person is squarely before the door. They're ready to walk in. They just have to make the continuous journey to attain the fourth stage of enlightenment through continuing to eliminate the 10 fetters. So that's what he's talking about here. This is kind of a preliminary understanding of dependent origination before we dive into it fully. Questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher. Uh, understanding the uh, dependent origination is a prerequisite, is uh, something required to attain the first stage, or it's just a result of attaining the first stage? It's a prerequisite before attaining the first stage of enlightenment. A person who's a stream answer of the first stage of enlightenment will have an understanding of dependent origination. Well, so uh, just curious to know, ask about, uh, does this mean that Gautama Buddha 
and maybe Jesus Christ, maybe Prophet Muhammad and all uh, original teachers were able to understand this very deep teaching even before attaining the first stage. If you're going to attain enlightenment in the Buddhist teachings and the way that he laid out the path, you will have, in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, eliminated those three fetters, right? Those first three. And remember last week, they will understand the five aggregates. They will understand the six sense bases. Here, he's also talking about understanding dependent origination. So these are some of the main criteria that you hear, and you'll hear some others in this book too. But in terms of what Jesus and Prophet Muhammad did, while their mind might have been awakened, it wasn't through, exactly through the teachings of the Buddha. So their mind would be a different path and have a different way of explaining how their mind awakened. I wouldn't describe Jesus as being fully awakened like the Buddha. That's why he said, I will come again. He essentially said, I will be reborn. He knew he needed to be reborn because he had not yet fully attained enlightenment. So that's why he needed to experience rebirth. So here the Buddha is talking about his teachings in order to progress in the path that he lays out. This is what a person would need to accomplish to get to that first stage. Thanks, Richard. No more questions. All right. So let's go to chapter 14. Did you have somebody to read chapter 14, Boston? Because I was thinking that it probably would be good for me to go through that. Maybe you actually had me listed for 14. That would be generous for me to check, okay? Okay, who, did you have somebody for 14? Uh, I was about to read it, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, so you're fine if I read it, right? Yeah, of course. Okay, so this goes through the detail of dependent origination as the law of nature. And we'll go through this piece by piece and help you guys learn it. So I'm gonna teach a little bit and then see if there's questions, teach a little bit and, and see if there's questions. The secondary title to this is a stream enter understands condition, the cause, the elimination in the way leading to the elimination of condition. The conditions are the individual 12 steps of dependent origination. And this is the first discourse. The Buddha talked about dependent origination multiple times, of course, because it was his ultimate teaching. So here he starts out with monks with ignorance, a knowing of true reality as condition, volitional formations or choices, decisions come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness. With consciousness as condition, name and form. With name and form as condition, the six sense bases. With the six sense bases as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition, craving, with craving as condition, clinging, with clinging as condition, existence, with existence as condition, birth, with birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the cause of the whole mass of discontentedness. So if we were going to encapsulate dependent origination, in a really small nugget that would be dependent origination right there okay but now what he's going to do is he's going to go through and he's going to explain each individual cause and condition and he's going to start from the bottom and work his way up because in order to eliminate and unravel this you would start from the outermost layer and work work into the core right so here he's going to talk about in what monks is aging in death 
So this is something that a stream inserter would understand. What is aging and death? The aging of the various beings and the various orders of beings, their growing, old, brokenness of teeth, graying of hair, wrinkling of skin, decline of vitality, degeneration of the sense bases. This is called aging. The passing away of the various beings from the various orders of beings, their perishing, breaking up, disappearance, mortality, death, completion of time, the breakup of the aggregates, that's the five aggregates, the laying down of the carcass, this is called death. Thus, this aging and this death are together called aging and death. With the arising of birth, there is a rising of aging and death. With the elimination of birth, there is the elimination of aging and death. Just this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of aging and death. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. All right, so what I'm going to share with you guys is the pattern that you're going to see here in the way that the Buddha teaches. When you understand the patterns of how he teaches, it's actually very easy to kind of absorb what he's actually saying. So the first part of what he's going to say in each one of these is he's going to explain the actual condition itself. So here he's explaining in this first paragraph, what is aging and death? He's explaining it as, you know, essentially this body starting to decay and losing vitality and, and the death in terms of breaking up of the aggregates and laying down the carcass. So he's explaining what it is. Then he explains what leads to this, right? So with the arising of birth, there is the arising of aging and death. That's the cause. The cause of aging and death is birth because without birth, there is no aging and death. So you're going to see this as he goes through the sequence of how he's going to share with you what something is. And then he's going to say, this is what leads to that. So if someone's experiencing aging and death, the reason why is because they were born. That's the only reason why we experience aging and death is because we're born. If we're not born, we won't experience aging and death. So that's this next part that the Buddha says. This is the elimination. With the elimination of birth, there's elimination of aging and death. So he said what it is, he said what is the cause and condition that leads to aging and death, and then he says, okay, if you eliminate that cause, which is birth, then you eliminate aging and death. Well, what is the path leading to the elimination of aging and death? Well, it's the Eightfold Path, because by learning and practicing the Eightfold Path, you unravel this whole massive amount of discontentedness and you unravel this whole dependent origination so that you will no longer experience aging and death. You won't experience rebirth. Now, the next one is the next one. It's the birth. So he's explaining what is birth in this first paragraph. What birth is, is in what monks is birth? The birth of various beings into the various realms of being. They're being born, descend into the womb, production, the coming together of the aggregates, the obtaining of the sense bases. This is called birth. So this is where we experience the attaining of the sense bases inside the womb of our mother. 
And now he says, okay, with the arising of existence, which is the next one, there is birth. Because if there's existence, there's going to be birth. With the elimination of existence, there's the elimination of birth. This noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of birth. And then he explains the eightfold path. So here, from this point forward, you understand the sequence. All I really need to read for you is the heading and kind of what that is. So in what, monks, is existence? There are these three kinds of existence. Sense sphere existence, which is the six sense bases. Form sphere existence, which is in the form realms of the animal realm and the human realm. Those are where we have physical form. And then the formless sphere existence, which is in the formless realms of hell, afflicted spirits, and heavenly realm. We don't have form in those three realms. This is called existence. And then, of course, he's going to say, what creates existence, right? With the arising of clinging, that's what's going to arise and create existence. With the elimination of clinging, there's elimination of existence. So when we eliminate clinging, holding on to things, then we eliminate this existence and continuous rebirth. Well, what's the way to do that? The Eightfold Path, right? That's the answer. And what, monks, is clinging? There are these four kinds of clinging. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to rules and vows, clinging to a notion of self. This is called clinging. So here, those central pleasures, those central desires, that's part of the ten fetters. And you can focus on eliminating central desires through this ten fetters, but it connects back. Everything the Buddha taught connects back to this dependent origination in one way or another. Here, clinging to central pleasures or central desires is what he's talking about here. Clinging to views. This is our opinions and views. In the unenlightened state, we have all kinds of opinions, all kinds of beliefs and views. If we cling to those opinions, beliefs, and views, then we're not going to be able to awaken the mind to this new wisdom and move beyond it if we're still holding on to those views. We need to be able to see the truth. And to be able to see the truth, we need to learn, reflect, and practice to see the truth. And that's how we let go of our previous beliefs, opinions, and views. And then we gain this new wisdom to awaken the mind and lead to the elimination of discontentedness. As long as we hold on to our opinions, views, and beliefs that we're in the unenlightened state, we're clinging and holding on to these beliefs, opinions, and views, how can we ever progress any further in order to eliminate discontentedness as long as we cling to those? So the Buddha is saying, okay, these are the clinging to views. Clinging to rules and vows. So here, this is important to acknowledge that there's some places that teach the Buddhist teachings as rules or training rules. Here you see the Buddha himself says, don't cling to rules or vows. He didn't actually teach in terms of rules. He shared guidance that when you learn, reflect, and practice, it leads to acquiring wisdom. He didn't teach a set of rules and say, follow these rules and you will get to enlightenment. Instead, he's saying, here that it's clinging to rules and vows that keeps the mind in the unenlightened state and we need to let go of clinging to certain rules and vows that we are holding on to 
because that's going to also require the mind to stay in this unenlightened state because it can't move into this wisdom if it's clinging to rules and vows. And then clinging to the notion of a self. This is that personal existence view. A person who hasn't realized the universal truth of non-self, if they still stay clinging to the self, that self-identity and self-image, then they're not going to be able to progress to enlightenment either. So the Buddha is saying, you know, drop all this clinging. But what is it that's leading to the clinging? Well, with the arising of craving, there's this arising of clinging. With the elimination of craving, there's the elimination of clinging. And it's the Eightfold Path that leads to that. So here, we talk a lot about craving, desire, attachment, and all the different parts of the program that I teach in the group learning program and other programs. The Four Noble Truths penetrate right down into the core of dependent origination. Here, craving is pretty much right in the middle of dependent origination. And it's the Four Noble Truths that encapsulates this and gives it in a small bite size that someone just starting out on the path can understand. But then as you evolve and you progress closer to this first stage of enlightenment, you want to start understanding the bigger picture and that craving is actually one cause and condition that leads to discontentedness. It's a cause and condition that we explain in the Four Noble Truths as the cause and condition. But here in this ultimate truth, the Buddha is explaining the cause and effect of 12 causes and conditions that lead to discontentedness and rebirth because he's pulling back more and more of the layers. It's the Four Noble Truths that gives you that first layer of understanding of what causes discontentedness. But then it's here in dependent origination that you get the full entire picture because by this point, somebody will be ready to really dive in and start understanding this and really start to progress in their understanding and learning. So here, the Buddha is explaining in what monks is craving. There are these six classes of craving. Craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for odors, craving for flavors, craving for physical objects, craving for mental objects. This is called craving. So this is craving through the six sense bases. This is the cause of discontentedness, but all these other factors lead to discontentedness too, but this is a really predominant factor. The primary thing that causes discontentedness is the craving through the six sense bases, through the eyes for forms, through the ears for sounds, through the nose for certain agreeable and pleasing odors, for certain flavors through the tongue, agreeable and pleasant flavors, craving for physical objects to come in contact with the body to create pleasant feelings and craving for certain mental objects, agreeable mental objects that create pleasant feelings. And then with the arising of feeling, there is the arising of craving. So once you experience pleasant feelings for the first time as a new being being born into the world, you'll experience then craving for it. So once you experience pleasant feelings, there's going to be this longing for that to continue. With the elimination of feeling, there is the elimination of craving. This is the reason why when you feel the arising pleasant feeling in the mind, you cut it off and let it go. Because if you can eliminate that pleasant feeling from arising in the mind, then it will eliminate the craving. 
right? Or if you feel that painful feeling arising in the mind, you cut it off and let it go. This is what diminishes and eliminates the craving so that feeling will no longer continue to occur. Or if you observe a neither painful nor pleasant feeling arising, you cut it off and let it go. Because with the elimination of the feeling, then there's elimination of the craving. So everything that you've been guided to in terms of the basic learning of the Eightfold Path, particularly right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, and by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, what you're doing in the Eightfold Path and specifically in breathing mindfulness meditation is preparing the mind to have this mindfulness or awareness of mind of these arising feelings so that then in daily life when you're aware of those pleasant painful or neither painful nor pleasant feelings arising you can cut them off and let them go so that you can eliminate the craving because that's the underlying thing that's really causing the discontent feelings to arise so that's why we do that because of right here independent origination and it's this noble eightfold path that is going to teach you that along with other things. And what monks is feeling? There are these six classes of feeling. Feeling born out of eye contact, feeling born out of ear contact, nose, tongue, body, and mind contact. So when there's contact through the six sense bases, then there's going to be a certain feeling pleasant feeling, painful feeling, or feeling that's neither painful nor pleasant. So if the mind is unenlightened, then when it experiences agreeable forms through contact with the eyes, it's going to experience pleasant feelings. But when it experiences disagreeable contact through the eyes, some form, then it's going to arise painful feelings. The same thing with the ear. When you hear certain sounds that are agreeable and you've had contact with that agreeable sound, now there's going to be pleasant feelings. Maybe your child or your boss or your neighbor tells you, oh, you look so beautiful today. Ah, there's those pleasant feelings. You've had contact with a sound and now there's these pleasant feelings that arise. But the problem with allowing the mind to do that is now your other neighbor says, what did you do with your hair today? And then now you hear this disagreeable sound. You have this contact through the ears of this disagreeable sound. And now these painful feelings come into the mind because it's basing its inner feelings on this contact, this agreeable and disagreeable contact through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And once again, these are things that you don't believe. You can chart and observe as the mind experiences pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. You can observe, did it come through the eyes, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, or the mind? Where is the contact that created the agreeable or disagreeable contact that arose these feelings? You can see the truth for yourself if you look at any of your past situations where you experience discontentedness, or now that you're aware of this, as your mind experiences discontentedness, you can break it down and see where did it come. And sometimes it's more than one. Sometimes you see something and hear it too, right? If you were walking down the street and you saw a car 
bang into another car and you heard the sound of the wheels and then crash and then you heard people scream and then you saw maybe some blood or some people that were in you know disfigured from the crash this is something that the eye sees this is something that the ear hears and it's coming in through two sense bases and if that's disagreeable the mind doesn't like that then it might experience painful feelings and the mind gets shaken up now as a result of that so you can see that to be true you don't have to believe it and what monks is contact there are these six classes of contact through the eyes ears nose tongue body mind these six sense bases experience contact now in what monks are the six sense bases the eye ear nose tongue body and mind these are the six sense bases how do those come about and what monks is name and form so the six sense bases come about due to name and form feeling perception volitional formations contact and consciousness this is name so these are four of the five aggregates so feeling perception volitional formations and consciousness are four of the five aggregates and contact is the fifth okay so this is what the buddha is calling name the four great elements and the form derived from the four great elements this is called form the four great elements are earth fire water and wind these four elements is how the buddha used to describe the physical body because they didn't understand atoms and dna and all the other things that we describe the body through now so they describe the body this physical form through the four great elements earth wind fire and water these are the four great elements and i in this chapter if it's not here it's another part of the book where i explain those four elements the earth element relates to the solids of the body so like the fingernails the teeth the hair and others this is the earth element this is how they describe the earth element then the wind element is how things move in the body there's this winds that kind of move and create movement in the body like the feces moving through the body is the wind element or the blood flowing in the body is the movement of the blood the blood itself is water but the movement of the blood is the wind then there's the fire this is the heat or the temperature of the physical body we also refer to the digestion as the fire element and then there's the water element which is the liquids like tears saliva urine blood things like this these are the water elements and when they describe the physical body the physical form they described it through these four elements but in reality you can describe everything through the four elements you can even describe this glass through the four elements it's a lot of earth element because it's made out of physical earth because it's pottery but there's not a whole lot of water that's part of this object there's not a much wind and there's not much fire so it's really heavy in earth element so we can describe the physical body through these four elements but we can also describe pretty much everything else through these four elements and in traditional medicine during the lifetime of the buddha and even now 
they will diagnose medical conditions through these four elements. It's a system of not only describing the body, but it's a system of diagnosing and treating the body through these four elements as well. So you can think of name and form as the five aggregates with contact, or you can just think of it as the physical body if you like. That's kind of an easy way to think of it at first is just think of name and form as the physical body, but know that it incorporates these other things as well, like feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, contact, consciousness in the physical form itself. Let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions so far before we move on to any of the other uh, steps of dependent origination. Yes, teacher. Let's go to Nick for Facebook questions. Yes. Amina has a question. Is it possible to be unafraid of death, but be cautious in avoiding catching COVID? Can the two outlooks live side by side? Yes. So if somebody has eliminated the fear of death, they're not afraid of death, but they're choosing to walk the middle way and make wise decisions to ensure that they're taking care of the physical body and doing things that are prudent in order to maintain life. So you don't have to be clinging to life and or and or afraid of death in order to be making wise decisions towards ensuring that the physical body is healthy. Okay. All right. So now we'll go on to consciousness. And what monks is consciousness? There are these six classes of consciousness. This is the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. These are the six senses again. So what consciousness is, is consciousness, you can think of it as like awareness. So what happens is you have this eye, this internal sense base of the eye. There's this external sense base of a physical form, then there's contact. There's these three things that then create eye consciousness or awareness. So if you have an eye, you see a physical form, there's contact there, those three things. Now the mind has awareness of those three things. Or if there's the ear, then there's a sound, which is the external sense base. There's contact. Now there's awareness in the mind of that sound. That's what this consciousness is. And all six of the sense bases function the same way, that there's this internal sense base, there's the external sense base, there's contact. And now because those three things exist, now there can be eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. That's how the mind becomes aware of anything that we interact with. So the Buddha is explaining that. So now, in what monks are volitional formations? These are the choices and decisions that we make. So there are these three kinds of volitional formations or choices and decisions. There's bodily volitional formations. So we make certain decisions about our body and how it moves about and the actions that we perform in the world. There's verbal volitional formations, certain choices we make about our speech and how we speak and interact with others. And then there's mental volitional formation, certain decisions that we make about the mind and, and what is maintained in the mind. These are called volitional formations. So when there's these choices and decisions, they lead to certain results. This is the natural law of gamma. 
are bodily, verbal, and mental conduct or volitional formations lead to certain results. This is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. When we are unwise and we make unwholesome decisions through our bodily, verbal, and mental conduct, then it's going to lead to unwholesome results. But when we gain wisdom to understand the wiseness of these teachings and we understand what is wholesome, now we can make wise decisions through our bodily, verbal, and mental conduct that lead to wholesome outcomes. So what do we need in order to make those unwise decisions or those wise decisions? Well, the Buddha tells you in the very top line of dependent origination, which is ignorance. It's ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, that there is the arising of volitional formations. So when you go back and you look at all of dependent origination, what you understand is that the thing that's keeping us in this cycle of rebirth is ignorance. That's the top line. It's ignorance, the unknowing of true reality that leads to discontentedness because that's the very bottom of this chain of events. It's ignorance that leads to discontentedness and it's ignorance that leads to the continuous birth that leads to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. So it's through eradicating ignorance that we eliminate this whole chain of events. And how do you eliminate ignorance? Through wisdom. This is why I will typically mention, and the Buddha mentions repeatedly about the acquiring of wisdom. Learn, reflect, and practice to acquire wisdom because it's the wisdom that unravels this whole chain of events that ultimately leads to discontentedness and continuous rebirth. But when you study this closely, and you'll probably need to visit this multiple times, and you might need some personal guidance as well, most people do. When you study this closely and you understand each one of these causes and conditions, then you fully understand what's causing all the discontentedness for yourself and everyone else in the world, that it's this ignorance. That's the main thing that's keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state, experiencing discontentedness and continuous rebirth. Because when the mind is ignorant or unknowing of true reality, we make decisions, volitional formations. We make unwise decisions that leads to unwholesome results. And because of that, there's certain consciousness that comes to be. This consciousness coming together with name and form, which is the physical body, creates the actual six sense spaces. And when the six sense spaces get created inside the mother's womb, now there's contact through these six sense spaces. And once there's contact through the six sense spaces, then there's these feelings that arise. These pleasant feelings, painful feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And when we experience those pleasant feelings, then the mind has this craving, this longing, this yearning, this wanting to hold on to those pleasant feelings permanently. Then there's this clinging where the mind holds on. So the craving is the yearning and longing for it. The clinging is holding on to it and wanting it to be permanent. And with this craving and clinging, now there comes about an existence where a being is now existing in the world and it becomes born into the world. And then once a being is born into the world, it's going to experience aging and death along with 
sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. Such is the cause of this whole mass of discontentedness. This is how discontentedness comes about, is that because unenlightened beings are ignorant, because we're ignorant of the causes and conditions that lead to discontentedness, the cycle just keeps continuing. Because we're ignorant or unknowing of true reality of the cycle of rebirth and what leads to birth, aging, and discontentedness, then we keep repeating it over and over again. But it's when the mind gains this wisdom, this penetrative wisdom of learning, reflecting, and practicing that we transform this ignorance to wisdom. And now with the deep understanding of this whole entire process that leads to discontentedness, birth, aging, and death, now we can unravel it through practicing the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings that connect into it. So this is what the Buddha is explaining in Dependent Origination. So hopefully this has helped you to gain a preliminary understanding. And now someone who's interested and feels they're ready to move towards the first stage of enlightenment would now deeply learn this and understand it because then it sets you up for deeper understanding of what you're trying to accomplish on this path on a day-to-day -day basis is that you're working to eliminate ignorance you're looking to improve your volitional formation so that you have wiser and wiser choices that you're making wise choices that lead to wholesome outcomes so that you don't continue experiencing this continuous rebirth experiencing these consistent discontent feelings because of craving and clinging, which leads to existence, birth, aging, death, sorrow, and despair. So here you get the full picture, but it's those Four Noble Truths that really boil it down for you. Any questions on this as a whole? Yes, teacher. So all this mess of discontentedness Experience, being experienced through countless eons, all are because of unknowing of true reality. Does this, a, is this the reason why ignorance is the tenth fetter and right view is the first aspect of Eightfold Path? Yes, exactly. Because without right view gaining the wisdom, you wouldn't be able to understand any of the rest of what the Buddha is teaching. And without eradicating ignorance, that 10th fetter, you'll never be able to make it to enlightenment because you wouldn't know the causes and conditions that are keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. It's not until one gains the wisdom, intellectual learning, reflecting and practicing. But it's not just the intellectual understanding of the teachings. It's the practical understanding. That's where you actually transform these conditions. So there's plenty of intellectual learning that needs to be done in order to train the mind to understand these teachings. But you're not really transforming the condition of the mind until you move those teachings that you've learned into practice. And that's where you learn something like the five factors of well-spoken speech. And now when you're able to consistently practice it on an ongoing, continuous basis, that's what transforms the mind and then it gets easier and easier to practice those five factors because it's just so ingrained in the mind. And this is one of the volitional formations that you improve with now wise decision-making that leads to wholesome outcomes. 
And then we could go through something like right action or right intention and all the others that through learning the wisdom of these natural laws, you transform that ignorance, eradicate that fetter of ignorance, but not just through the intellectual learning, through the actual practice. That's what really trains the mind and transforms it to eradicate the ignorance. Well, as for volitional formations, choices and decisions, is it also dependent on ignorance? So with the meaning that a, an enlightened being, all enlightened beings will not have any volitional formations. They will have the same opinions about truth. A enlightened being isn't going to have opinions. They're going to have the truth. They're going to have what the Buddha called as final knowledge. This is enlightenment. So they will have deeply penetrated into these teachings and practice them so deeply, transforming the mind, no longer experiencing any discontentedness, that they're not having opinions. They understand the truth. And this is where you can have people that have never met each other before. If they've all studied in the Buddhist teachings like this, even though they've never met each other before, they can have essentially the exact same answer to a certain problem. So you could ask somebody that's enlightened, person A and person B who have never met each other, and you say, what is the main cause and condition that keeps the mind in the unenlightened state? Enlightened being A is going to say ignorance. Enlightened being B is going to say ignorance. They're both going to know that because they will have transformed the mind. And that's one of those questions that they would both hundred uh, percent no, just like the rest of these teachings and an enlightened being, they're still going to have choices and decisions. But now instead of that top line being ignorance, that top line is going to be wisdom. That top line will be wisdom. And now they will have volitional formations or choices and decisions that are based in wisdom. And that's what will unravel this whole entire process. So there will no longer be continuous ignorance that leads to unwholesome decisions, that leads to consciousness, name and form, six sense bases. They will still, of course, have the six sense bases as an enlightened being, but they will no longer have craving and clinging through these six sense bases, which will produce these discontent feelings. The discontentedness will have been eradicated and there will no longer be any rebirth to continue to experience any discontentedness because they've already eliminated it in this existence so there won't be a next existence many thanks no more questions all right so now we go to chapter 15 which by the way backing up just to this chapter 14 if you haven't read this yet be sure to read this because i go through and share in detail an explanation that will help you to understand this dependent origination and I provide this chart to help you understand it as well and the rest of this series of chapters what you're gonna see here is it's all about dependent origination there's some later as we get closer to chapter 20 that aren't about dependent origination but here the Buddha is just further explaining the aspects of dependent origination that a practitioner will need to understand in order to move into that first stage of enlightenment. Again, they will not have eradicated ignorance yet, a person in the first stage of enlightenment, but they will understand 
dependent origination and what leads to discontentedness. So here, I'm not sure that we necessarily need to read through each one of these subsequent chapters, but more or less kind of focus on what the Buddha is actually sharing here. For example, in chapter 15, what he's sharing here is he's saying, you know, here in monks, a monk understands aging and death, its cause, its elimination, and the way leading to the elimination. Here he's just pointing back to dependent origination and saying a person should understand what is birth, what is its cause, what is the elimination, and what is the way leading to the elimination. Well, he just gave you that independent origination itself. So I don't know that we have to read that part. And then here in this particular discourse, he's just explaining what he just explained in the previous discourse. Because remember, he said these discourses at different times. There might have been a a two-month or two-year difference, maybe even a 10-year difference between when he delivered one discourse versus another. But he's explaining it in exactly the same way as he did the previous discourse. So this is just another discourse in support of the previous discourse, ensuring that you understand that you as a practitioner need to understand each one of these causes and conditions as an individual thing and then what leads to that, what creates it, or what's the cause, how to eliminate it, and then the way to eliminate it. That's kind of the easiest one because it's always the Eightfold Path. The elimination is just to eliminate the one prior to it. The cause is the one prior to it. So then you just understand what is the actual thing itself, right? So let's see what else is here. Okay, so yeah, that's all he's saying here. He's just repeating what he said in the previous discourse. So that's chapter 15. Chapter 16, it's titled The 44 Cases of Wisdom. Here he's taking the 11 main steps, leaving off ignorance, I think it is. He's taking the 11 and he's giving you the four things that you need to understand as it relates to the 11 aspects of dependent origination which is essentially what we just talked about in this previous chapter but it's just laid out in a different way he's saying okay what you need is the wisdom of aging and death the wisdom of its cause the wisdom of its elimination the wisdom of the way leading to its elimination so for each one of these you would just need to understand that which the more time you spend with it and you talk with your teacher and you get some help you'll be able to understand these things and then he explains it to you here later, which he's explaining just like he did in the dependent origination. He's explaining to you step by step how to understand those things. Okay. Here, I would like to focus in on this. When monks, a noble disciple understands aging and death, its cause, its elimination, and the way leading to its elimination. This is his wisdom of principle. And of course, the gender here is multi-gendered. So this is the principal thing that he's guiding someone to understand. By means of this principle that is seen, meaning you can clearly see dependent origination for yourself, not belief. You need to really go through it and kind of pull it apart and look at it. When you understand this principle that is seen, understood, immediately attained, fathomed he applies the method to the past into the future so you can see for your previous births that you were 
experiencing this whole entire dependent origination because you can see it now currently and then you can also see that that's what's going to continue to transpire for the future whatever aesthetics and brahman in the past directly knew aging and death its cause its elimination and the way leading to its elimination all these directly knew it in the very same way that i do now Whatever aesthetics and Brahmins in the future will directly know aging and death, its causes, its elimination, and its way leading to its elimination. All these will directly know it in the very same way that I do now. So he's saying this dependent origination in the past and in the future is exactly the same as he knows it now, meaning this teaching of dependent origination, it's a natural law. It doesn't change. So Anyone who understood this in the past, prior to the Buddha, anyone who understands it in the future is going to understand it in the same way that he does now because it's a timeless law. It's a natural law. And he's saying this is his wisdom of entailment. What wisdom of entailment is, is wisdom of entailment is understanding the principle of each one of these individual causes and conditions and understanding how one leads to the next to the next, to the next. This is how a person can discover the truth, that if this is true and this leads to this condition, then this also is true too. And if this is false, then this is false too. Or if I eliminate this cause and condition, then I've eliminated this. Or if this arises, then that means this is going to arise as well. That's what wisdom of entailment is, is one thing leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And this is how you can see the cause and effect relationship between the individual causes and conditions of dependent origination. So he calls this the wisdom of entailment. And you need to be able to see that cause and effect relationship between each one of these in your own life. And this is why you'll be able to see it very clearly that if you dissect this understanding it in detail you'll be able to see in your own life how all of this stuff is true and as you see it more and more clearly then you'll arrive to these true teachings you'll have this penetrative wisdom and you'll have this wisdom of entailment when monks a noble disciple has purified and cleansed these two kinds of wisdom wisdom of the principle understanding the main aspect of dependent origination each one of those conditions and wisdom of entailment, he is then called a noble disciple. So a noble disciple, someone who's trained very deeply with the Buddha, they will understand the individual principle of what each one of those conditions are and what leads to the next condition. Okay. Who is accomplished in view, accomplished in vision, has arrived at these true teachings, who sees the these true teachings, who possesses a trainee's wisdom, who possesses a trainee's true wisdom, who has entered the stream of the teachings, a noble one with penetrative wisdom, one who stands squarely before the door of the deathless. So this is that same paragraph that he shared before. And now here he's going through and he's going to explain to you exactly what he's saying that you need to learn, you need to understand He's explaining it to you piece by piece by piece right here in each individual one. Uh, What I'm doing in the book is giving you the main structure of how he's describing the discourse. 
And then these others that are just dot, 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 it's basically take this same structure and then just repeat it for each one of these causes and conditions until you get to this one, which is the top line one, which is leading to ignorance. Okay, let's see what else we need to look at here. Any questions on this chapter? No question this time, teacher. Okay, so this is another one that you really need to go through really deeply, but it all goes back to chapter 14. Same thing here, chapter 17, the 77 cases of wisdom. Now he's pulling back the layers more. Before this, it was the 44 cases. Now it's like, oh, 77. Okay, so you'd like us to learn more. So you dive deeper and deeper into this. And he explains to you here exactly what needs to be learned and understood and seen as truth. So you take this layer by layer by layer and understand these deeper and deeper. And he goes through each individual group in order to help you see exactly what you need to understand and then again you don't believe it but you learn reflect and practice to see the truth and you reach out and get help where you need help understanding any of these and then let's see this is where he actually talks about the wisdom of principle and wisdom of entailment more deeply similar to the previous one that we talked about so here it's encapsulated in one chapter but it's just repeated over and over and over for each individual cause and condition and then chapter 19 okay so this is something new but it still plugs into dependent origination everything the buddha taught plugs into dependent origination in one way or another that's why it's the ultimate truth the ultimate teaching that's as complicated as it gets so as you dig into that and you understand dependent origination more and more it actually helps you understand all the entire path so clearly. So here, the Buddha is going to be talking about clinging. So if you guys don't have any other questions on the previous chapters, we can pick up here, Bossum. Yeah, let's go to Nick. Yes, teacher. I have a question on uh, chapter 17. Okay. Uh, in the groups, the number seven. Okay. Um, just... Uh, just just wondering what the meaning of that is is it like the five disappearances of group seven here uh, well any of the groups but number seven okay the, the wisdom that wisdom of the stability of the teachings is also subject to destruction oh. vanishing fading away and elimination i see what you see okay so here the wisdom that wisdom of the stability of the teachings is also subject to destruction, vanishing, fading away, and elimination. Yeah, so what he's explaining here is the impermanence of his own teachings, is that in order to penetrate these teachings after a Buddha's death, a person would need to understand how to learn, reflect, and practice. This is why you can't just read a book and attain enlightenment, because if that book, including the books that I've written, are not 100% truth, then that's going to get exposed through your reflection and your practice. You'll be able to see that, aha, this, I can't independently confirm this and I can't see that craving causes discontentedness. If you can't see that, then you need to get help and ensure you get help. And then as you get help, your teacher should be able to clarify it for you. But here, what he's explaining is he's saying these teachings are subject to impermanence. 
that when he speaks and when he discusses the teachings, that from that point forward, he knew that they would be declining over time. And he gave these five 500-year cycles that explains the progression of his teachings to ultimately decline and fade away, and that that's part of it all. And then there's a new Buddha that comes about in order to bring his teachings back into the world and helps people see them very clearly. And then from that point forward, we know that more and more gradually the world will attain enlightenment as people choose to do that. But I wouldn't necessarily connect these to the five disappearances exactly, uh, Nick, but I understand why you think that way. But that's part of it all, but yet it's not exactly connected. But it's in that same light. It's around that same aspect of the declining of the teachings and the impermanence of them in terms of what he spoke, not the impermanence of the actual natural laws themselves, because the natural laws themselves are timeless. They've been the same from before the Buddha, during the Buddha, and now after the Buddha. But it's his words that he spoke that kind of degraded over time. And even in written text, they degraded over time. And this is why one's own learning, reflection, and practice is so vitally important. And you can't believe the teachings because it's not going to lead to wisdom if we aren't learning, reflecting, and practicing. Thank you, teacher. You're very welcome. No more question. All right. So now we go to 19, which is a new topic, but yet everything we talk about goes back to dependent origination in one way or another. Let's go to Miranda. A stream enterer has abandoned confusion in the case of clinging to aggregates. Monks, when what exists by clinging to what, by adhering to what, does such a view as this arise? The winds do not blow, the rivers do not flow, pregnant women do not give birth, the moon and sun do not rise and set, but stand as steady as a pillar. Venerable sir, our teachings are rooted in the perfectly enlightened one. Take recourse in the perfectly enlightened one. It would be good if the perfectly enlightened one would clear up the meaning of this statement. Having heard it from him, the monks will remember it. Then listen and attend closely, monks, I will speak. When there is form, monks, by clinging to form, by adhering to form, such a view as this arises. The winds do not blow, the rivers do not flow, pregnant women do not give birth, the moon and sun do not rise and set, but stand as steady as a pillar. In the case of feeling, perception, volitional formations, choices and decisions, and consciousness, the discourses are identical except for the reference to each of the aggregates previously mentioned. What do you think, monks? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness or peacefulness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. But without clinging to what is impermanent, discontentedness and subject to change, could such a view as this arise? The winds do not blow, the rivers do not flow, pregnant women do not give birth. The moon and sun do not rise and set, but stand as steady as a pillar? No, venerable sir. In the case of feeling, perception, volitional formations, choices, decisions, and consciousness, the discourses are identical except for the reference to each of the aggregates previously mentioned. That which is seen, heard, sensed, recognized, attained, sought after, and ranged over by the mind, is that permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. 
is what is impermanent discontentedness or peacefulness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. But without clinging to what is impermanent, discontentedness and subject to change, could such a view as this arise? The winds do not blow, the rivers do not flow, pregnant women do not give birth, the moon and sun do not rise and set, but stand steady as a pillar? No, venerable sir. When monks, a noble disciple has abandoned confusion in these six cases, and when further, he has abandoned confusion about discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. He is then called a noble disciple who is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny with enlightenment as his destination. Thank you, Miranda. So here, now that a practitioner has read through the book and starts to dive into dependent origination, now you start to understand that craving and clinging is that core problem right there in the middle as we understand as part of the Four Noble Truths. And specifically, when the Buddha talks about the Four Noble Truths, he talks about clinging to the five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. And here he's saying, okay, if you understand impermanence, then you wouldn't have any confusion about these aggregates and, and attempting to cling to these aggregates. And it's only if somebody was clinging to these aggregates that they would have the opinion or the view that the wind does not blow, the rivers do not flow, pregnant women do not give birth, and the moon and the sun do not rise and set but stand steady as a pillar because all of those things are examples of impermanence. And the Buddha is explaining impermanence there and he's saying, okay, somebody who is a noble disciple, one who understands discontentedness, essentially the Four Noble Truths, he doesn't have confusion or she or any gender doesn't have confusion about discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination, or the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So these are things that a stream enterer would understand. And because they understand them, they are no longer bound to the netherworld. The netherworld are those lower realms. They're fixed in destination. Fixed in destination because once someone's a stream enterer, it's a maximum of seven more births before they attain enlightenment. So getting to stream entry means that, that they're going to eventually attain enlightenment within the maximum of seven rebirths. And enlightenment is his or her or whatever gender we'd like to use destination. The Buddha was often talking to males in his male ordained practitioners, so he used the male gender, but this applies to all genders. Uh, so here the Buddha is explaining, which you might have understood from other teachings, about the universal truth of impermanence and not to cling to these five aggregates. And doing so, one can ultimately make their way to stream entry. Questions on this chapter? Uh, talking about the stream entry, it's uh, as a maximum seven future rebirth. Uh, these seven include the one in which the practitioner attains enlightenment? Yes. So in a maximum of seven. So they might experience uh, six more rebirths and continue to become a stream enter each time of those six. And then on the seventh rebirth, they could attain enlightenment. But it doesn't have to be seven. It could be one more rebirth or two more or three more. It could be in the human realm. It could also be in the heavenly realm as well. 
but a maximum of seven will they experience b before they actually attain enlightenment. Okay, thanks, teacher. No more question. All right. So now we go to chapter 20, the last one for today. I think this one was pretty long, if I remember correctly. Let me see. Yeah. Let's see. Maybe I should just go through this one, Bossum, unless you guys have an interest to, to read it. Of course, you're teacher, yes. Okay. So here the title is, A Stream Enter Has Abandoned Confusion in the Case of Nothing Matters. Monks, when what exists by clinging to what, by adhering to what, does such a view as this arise? There is nothing giving, nothing offered, nothing presented in charity, no fruit or result of wholesome and unwholesome actions, no this world, no other world, no mother, no father, no beings who are reborn spontaneously. No aesthetics in Brahman, faring and practicing rightly in the world, who, having realized this world in the other world for themselves by direct knowledge or experience, making them known to others, this person consists of the four great elements. When one dies, earth returns to and merges with the earth body. Water returns to and merges with the water body. Fire returns to and merges with the fire body. Wind returns and merges with the wind body. The sense bases are transferred to space. Four men with support for the body as the fifth, carrying away the corpse. The formal funeral speech lasts as far as the charnel ground. The bones whitened. Burnt offerings end with ashes. Giving is a doctrine of unwise. Okay, so let me just pause here. The Buddha is essentially saying that someone who thinks this way is not thinking in the right, the right way. He's saying that if you're clinging to things, then there might be the belief or the opinion or the view that nothing giving, nothing offered, nothing presented in charity, that there is no fruit or result of wholesome or unwholesome actions, meaning that there is no such thing as the natural law of gamma, that there is no this world or the other world, the other world or the other realms of the five realms of existence. And then he goes through all these others as well. And he goes through and he explains various aspects here and i'll just kind of continue but he, he's not saying that giving is a doctrine of unwise he's essentially setting this up and saying someone who thinks this way is not wise and is not really practicing or understanding the true teachings when anyone asserts the doctrine that there is giving in the like it is empty, false, and frivolous speech. That's where he's saying it right there. So if somebody saying that, you know, giving and sharing and practicing generosity is unwise, then it's false and frivolous speech. Unwise and the wise are alike cut off and perish with the breakup of the body after death. They do not exist. So he's saying if somebody shares this teachings, that generosity and this giving and sharing is unwise. It's false and frivolous speech, and it cuts off people from experiencing enlightenment, is what he's saying. Venerable Sir, our teachings are rooted in the perfectly enlightened one. Take recourse in the perfectly enlightened one. It would be good if the perfectly enlightened one would clear up the meaning of this statement 
having heard it from him, the monks will remember it. Then listen and attend closely, monks, I will speak. This is essentially attention, everyone, attention, right? We might read this and think, wow, that might be kind of rude for somebody to say. But during their lifetime and the way that they spoke, it was kind of like what we would say today is like, attention, attention, the teacher is about ready to begin. You know, everybody listen up. So the Buddha is saying, then listen and attend closely, monks, I will speak. I will share the teachings with you. When there is form, monks, by clinging to form, by adhering to form, such a view as this arises. So when there's clinging to the five aggregates, then this is where people think there is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing presented to charity. There's no fruit or result. Essentially, there's no natural law of gamma. There's no this world. There's no that world. So as long as someone's clinging to these five aggregates, they're going to think falsely. They're going to have this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. What do you think, monks? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness or peacefulness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. So now he's going through and he's just explaining more and more about this unwise view, this unwise opinion. And then he's helping them and walking them through by asking his students questions and then for them to answer it, to be able to see the truth for themselves. This is a way of teaching that you ask your students questions rather than just tell them the information. So now he goes on, he says, but without clinging to what is impermanent, discontentedness and subject to change, could such a view as this exist or arise that there is nothing given, nothing offered? And he goes through all those unwise thoughts. And then his students say, you know, no, that thought couldn't exist. That type of unwise thinking would not exist if somebody was not clinging to the five aggregates, then they would understand the truth. So that's when the Buddha says, when monks, a noble disciple has abandoned confusion in these six cases, and when further, he has abandoned confusion about discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness, he is then called a noble disciple who is a stream enter, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destination with enlightenment as his destination. So here he's explaining, if you remember in the previous chapters, where he said a stream enter needs to understand what the five aggregates are. And by understanding what the five aggregates are, then a stream enter understands not to cling to these five aggregates. You haven't necessarily accomplished that yet, but a stream enter understands these five aggregates and he understands not to cling to them. And he understands the reason why is because these five aggregates are impermanent. And by clinging to these impermanent things, then it leads to discontentedness. And why would you put yourself through that? And a stream enter understands giving and sharing. A stream enter understands the natural law of gamma. Here, the aspect of no fruit or result of wholesome and unwholesome actions would be there's no such thing as cause and effect. A stream enter understands that there are these five realms of existence. They might not have confirmed it through their own practice in terms of being able to observe their past lives. They may have or they may not have, but they at least understand that that's what the Buddha taught and those are 
the five realms and so forth and so on. He explains all of that here. Questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher. Let's go to Nick for Facebook questions. Yes, Farik said as a question. He writes, Bante, the view of clinging to the witness as the self, is this due to clinging to the aggregate of consciousness or this falls on another aggregate? So what you're describing as the witness, the Buddha describes it as the person from the translations that I use. So there's the, there's the physical body, which here we're talking about it as name and form or form. And then there's the mind, which in the aggregates is described as the consciousness. These two things coming together is what creates the person. Okay. And it's clinging to both of those things, the physical form and the consciousness that personal existence view arises. So as long as there's clinging to the physical form and clinging to the consciousness, that's where a being doesn't understand the universal truth of non-self. And there's still that self-image, the physical body. There's still that self-identity, the consciousness in the mind that one then has not realized non-self and they're going to continue to have discontentedness because of that and all the other fetters as well. Many thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So as you guys see here, some really deep investigation, some deep learning with the Buddhist teachings that now having studied for the amount of time that you've studied through the group learning program, through volumes one, two, three, and four, through diving deep into your practice, now in this volume five, the Buddha is really getting into the heart of it all because this is what sets a practitioner up to make that ultimate journey to enlightenment through attaining the first stage of enlightenment while challenging is going to set you up for enlightenment. And that's why I suggest that a practitioner really focuses initially on those beginning teachings to develop their foundation. The three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the three poisons, developing an understanding of the natural law of gamma, extensive meditation training, the Brahma Viharas, the Ten Fetters, all of those things that I talked about in other versions of the books, I say, okay, this is where a practitioner should really spend the vast majority of their time, especially for probably the first year or so, because you really need to learn those things and then build up your life practice to be able to actually practice those. And now, once you've got all that underway and you're practicing those quite well, now this is where you can set your sights on things like the five aggregates, the six sense bases, dependent origination, and some of these other teachings that you're learning in this book. But if somebody was to just jump in and actually start learning in volume five from the beginning, it's like, whoa, where does all this stuff coming from? But it's all those preliminary uh, teachings and that foundation that you learn in other parts of what I share that really prepares you to dive in and understand something like dependent origination. It's once a practitioner has done the work in those other areas that you'll understand something like dependent origination. And even having done all that work, it usually takes multiple times for somebody to go through and dig in and ask questions 
Nick will tell you when he was here in Thailand, you know, he would come in day after day and rolling up his sleeves and asking all kinds of questions about dependent origination to the point where I even updated some of the text to make it more clear so that students would really understand what that is and have a better chance of going through the text and understanding it in more detail. But you, you're going to need help. You're going to need to ask questions, whether that's in the Facebook group, whether it's in these online classes, whether it's sending a private message or scheduling personal guidance, feel free to reach out and ask for help in any of these teachings that you're learning in any of the books or any of the programs, particularly this one, because it'll take a good amount of work to get up and running with these teachings that the Buddha is sharing. And as you do, and you start realizing the benefits of the jhanas and the first stage of enlightenment, then you see the truth for yourself that by learning these things and practicing these things, it's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's not just book learning. It's actually learning through the book, learning through the classes, learning through the personal guidance. But then when you reflect and practice, you start making different decisions. When you understand these five aggregates, for example, and you understand the central desire through the six sense bases, and you understand how that's causing the mind to be discontent, you deeply penetrate it with wisdom and you see with direct experience and direct knowledge that these things are indeed what's leading to discontentedness. You'll start making different decisions in your daily life about how you choose to allow the mind to potentially cling or cut that off or crave and cut that off and knowing that that's important for you to do. You'll make different decisions about your meditation practice. If you haven't really made that a priority for a period of time or you've kind of been on and off, the more you understand how meditation connects into all of this and that it's through breathing mindfulness meditation and it's through loving kindness meditation that helps to unravel all of this, you'll start making better decisions about whether you go off and do this thing or the other thing or whether you really just take 30 minutes or so and actually dedicate it to meditation in that moment. So you'll find that your volitional formations or your choices and decisions will be more informed with this wisdom that you're acquiring through diving deeply into this chapters and into this book and into all the other words of the Buddha. So thank you all for your deep study and investigation. Just know that I'm here to help you and support you as you continue to progress forward. Next week, we'll study the next 10 chapters, which is chapters 21 through 30. So you can read those before class and then come to class and ask any questions that you like about those. And then remember to keep your practice going with the Eightfold Path, and which includes meditation and everything else. This Sunday, which is tomorrow, we're going to be in chapter 14 of volume one in the group learning program. This is the chapter that's titled Cultivating Healthy Mental States, Loving Kindness, Compassion, Sympathetic Joy, and Equanimity. So we're going to be teaching that as part of our class tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be in breathing mindfulness meditation. We're going to be doing that in order to build up our practice. So we'll see you guys either on Sunday, Wednesday, or next Saturday. Have a lovely and wonderful year. Really pleased that you've decided to invest your time, effort, energy, and resources into learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. It's the very best thing you could ever do for your life. We'll see you next time. Sawadee 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.